All right, well, thank you again for joining us. Like Pastor Andrew said, we hope that you had a great Thanksgiving. I hope you still have some great leftovers that you can enjoy for lunch today. Um, All that kind of fun, good stuff. If we haven't met before or we've just met a couple times, my name is Corey, and I have the honor and privilege of being the lead pastor here. And you're joining us at a time where maybe you thought you were going to walk in today and we were going to be in full Christmas mode. We are not quite there yet. We've been traveling through the book of Judges, and so this is week eight, our final week in the book of Judges. So if you're ready for Christmas, come back next week. We'll kick off Christmas, and we'll all be really excited um, about that. One reminder, just before I get started, if you are a partner, uh, thank you to those of you who are bringing in your partnership commitments to us. Uh, You are welcome to continue to do that. I realized the email that went out this week, I remembered the link to the video. I remembered to add the PDF of the partnership commitment. I forgot to give you the online link if you wanted to fill it out. So if you go right now uh, to our website on the homepage or to the follow along, there is a link. If you would like to fill that out online and you're ready to do that, you can do that uh, right now. Otherwise, you can keep bringing those back. Um, and a reminder, if you'd like to become a partner, you are welcome to grab the next steps card that's in the seat back in front of you. Just let us know you're ready to become a partner and we'll get you in there for 2023. But Let's start thinking about Judges as we wrap up this conversation. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to take the whole last three chapters of Judges. And so one of the things that we have um, realized as we've gone along this, right, we have not done an extensive study. You can't do Judges in eight weeks and really dig into all that's there. We've skipped chapters. We've skipped stories. We've skipped parts of stories just to make sure we kind of got the big bullet points. So I would encourage you to go back at some point and just read through. It's not a terrible amount of time to read through. You could probably do it in one sitting, maybe two, and just kind of get yourself all the pieces maybe that you missed. But we're going to take the last three chapters and process through this. Now, I will warn you, I noticed we have some visitors with us, you know, joining for Thanksgiving, all that kind of fun stuff. You chose an interesting week to join us, okay? Because Judges, the reason we're even studying Judges is because it's a difficult book to understand. We decided we didn't want to shy away from it. I I made the point a few weeks ago, many pastors like myself, if you told us we had to preach in like a half hour, we could figure it out. We'd have somewhere we could go, a passage we would open to and go, okay, I can give you something, right? Nobody I know picks judges for that, okay? Very difficult pieces to understand and to go through. And these last three chapters are no exception. In fact, chapter 19 might be the worst chapter in scripture, okay? I'm just warning you. It's going to happen, okay? If we, if we took these three chapters and, and there was a movie made and we went point of view, we saw everything we're reading, you would not go see this movie. In fact, Christians would look at the person who made this movie and said, don't like that person, okay? Because we didn't like it. And so we have to ask the question. We're going to go through it, but we're going to ask the question, why do we learn it? Why is it there? Why is it part of scripture? And what can we do with it? And so we're going to walk through these last three chapters. So chapters 19 to 21, if you want to scan that QR code or you scan uh, on the back of your next steps card, that will take you to our follow along. So you can read all the, you can read along with me, all the verses, you can have all the notes, you can um, ask a question or even submit a prayer request if you want. We're going to do all the Bible work up front. So we're literally going to travel through most of these three chapters, and then we're going to kind of put a bow on Judges and these three chapters at the end, okay? So we're going to do a lot of reading, and then we'll get there. I split this conversation up into three parts because there's three chapters. And so we're going to start, obviously, in chapter 19. And the title that I gave chapter 19 is The Levite, okay? So let's jump in. We'll kind of get the stage set for what we're talking about here in these last three chapters. So in Judges 19, verses 1 and 2, this is what it says. 
Now, in those days, Israel had no king. Very important phrase, right? Remember this. There were judges in Judges. There haven't been for a little while now. Samson was the last one. So we had a conversation about Samson a few weeks ago. Then there's no judges after this. And it just says that Israel had no king. This is not just talking about people. Like they didn't just have a physical king. They're deciding they don't want to follow God either. And so they literally have no one that they're following at this point. So they had no king. There was a man from the tribe of Levi living in a remote area of the hill country of Ephraim. One day he brought home a woman from Bethlehem in Judah to be his concubine. But she became angry with him and returned to her father's home in Bethlehem. Verse 3, after about four months, her husband set out for Bethlehem to speak personally to her and persuade her to come back. She took with him a servant and a pair of donkeys. When he had arrived at her father's house, her father saw him and welcomed him. Now, this might be weird, okay? Think about what we just read, right? He arrives and the father welcomes him in. That doesn't sound like something we would do, right? You took my daughter as your concubine, so you don't want to marry her necessarily. You just want the benefits of the relationship, but I'm going to welcome you in. So why would that happen? Well, the reason is because if there was a legal agreement there, which it seems like there was, and the Levite decided he wanted to press charges against her, that could be very problematic. So dad is saying, let's stay away from legal problems. Let's just try and fix this kind of, you know, brush it over. We'll just get this back and situated. We'll all be fine. We'll keep the Levite happy. So in verse four, as our father urged him to stay a while, so he stayed three days eating, drinking, and sleeping there. And so this, this actually starts kind of a roundabout conversation where he stays for a while and the Levite decides he wants to leave. And a couple of times dad comes back and goes, no, 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 like let's feast a little longer. Let's drink a little longer, hang out a little longer. We don't necessarily know what his motivation was for that. Maybe he wanted to keep his daughter around for longer. Maybe he just wanted the Levite to be in good spirits again. So he didn't press charges, all that kind of stuff. But he keeps him around for a little while longer. And then finally, the Levite says, you know what? It's time to go. We're going to get out of here. We're going to go home. I've had enough of this. Let's get out of here. So we jump to verses 14 and 15. It says, So they went on. The sun was setting as they came to Gibeah, a town in the land of Benjamin. So they stopped there to spend the night, and they rested in the town square. But no one took them in for the night. Now, this is kind of strange to us, right? If we were traveling into a city, Lancaster, Philadelphia, Harrisburg, wherever you can go, right? You wouldn't just go there and find a seat in the middle of the city and wait, right? This is strange, but this was the custom for them. And so if you kind of came and you were a traveler and you came and you sat in the town square and you waited there for a while, that was kind of the signal that you were looking for some place to stay. Now, there were inns and things like that, but it wasn't as easy as, you know, jumping on Expedia or whatever, finding a hotel room and booking that. So you'd go and you'd sit there and somebody would hopefully come along and say, hey, you can stay at my place tonight. That was the idea. That was the custom. And it was encouraged to show hospitality to people. So that's what they were hoping for. And so they sit there for a while and no one takes them in. But eventually this older gentleman comes along. And in verses 20 and 21, this way he says, you're welcome to stay with me. The old man said, I will give you anything you might need. But whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. So he took them home with him and fed the donkeys. And after they washed their feet, they ate and drank together. So older gentleman comes along. He says, I'll bring you in. But he gives him this weird word of warning, right? Right? Don't stay here. 
you can come stay with me. We'll take care of you. Everything's good, but don't stay here. Kind of weird, kind of ominous, but we're going to learn in the verses to come why this was the case and why this conversation was had. So in verse 22, it says, While they were enjoying themselves, a crowd of troublemakers from the town surrounded the house. They began beating at the door and shouting to the old man, Bring out the man who is staying with you so we can have sex with him. This is where it starts to turn. Okay, don't say I didn't warn you, right? So a group comes to the house and they make their demands. Problematic, but let's see how they handle it. Verse 23, the old man stepped outside to talk to them. No, my brothers, don't do such an evil thing, for this man is a guest in my house, and such a thing would be shameful. So you're like, okay, good job. I, this guy's on the right track, right? He's trying to stop them, trying to protect them, make sure this isn't done. This is shameful, right? Yeah, we'll go to verse 24. Here, take my virgin daughter and this man's concubine. I will bring them out to you, and you can abuse them and do whatever you would like. But don't do such a shameful thing to this man. How is that your response, right? Why is that the solution to the problem? The answer is basically because women were looked down upon, right? They were seen a little bit more as property at the time. And so they say, well, we'll just have the women take care of this so that we don't have to deal with it. And they're willing to push them out the door. Again, hugely problematic. And we don't understand this, this line of reasoning. Skip verse 25, we'll go to verse 26. At daybreak, by the way, the concubine's the only one who ends up out there. The daughter is not. At daybreak, the woman returned to the house where her husband was staying. And she collapsed at the door of the house and lay there until it was light. So she's abused all night. She collapsed at the doorstep. Verses 27 to 28, when her husband opened the door to leave, there lay his concubine with her hands on the threshold. He said, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. So he put her on, put her on his donkey and took her home. So he gets up the next day, not a care in the world seemingly, opens the door, sees her laying there, let's go, right? No response, lifeless. So he puts her on the donkey and takes her home. Do you think this is bad? It continues to get worse. I'm just warning you, right? Verse 29. When he got home, he took a knife and cut his concubine's body into 12 pieces. Then he sent one piece to each tribe throughout all the territory of Israel. Verse 30. Everyone who saw it said such a horrible crime has not been committed in all the time since Israel left Egypt. Think about it. What are we going to do? Who's going to speak up. So he lets all the tribes of Israel know that this has happened. This is kind of like a horror movie, right? Like this is the kind of stuff you would see. Again, I would say this is not a movie you would want to see, right? But he sends this out. Everybody in Israel figures it out. And all of a sudden they realize they've crossed the line. Maybe there's a time in your life or in somebody else's life that you remember where you were kind of like, you would do things and you'd kind of get away with it and you would like, you knew the line where you shouldn't cross and one day, or your friend knew the line they shouldn't cross and then one day you kind of went over the line or like you knew how much you could kind of say to your parents in talking back to them and then one day something came out of your mouth and you realized that was too far, right? And all of a sudden you had to try and reel it back in or undo what you did. But in that moment you knew like I, I was on this side of the tracks and I'm on this side of the tracks. And all of a sudden you had to, Realized that was a problem? Well, that's what happened for the Israelites. They kind of realized this, this was worse, right? They say, in all the time since we've been out of Egypt, nothing this bad has ever happened. 
They realized for a while they were okay, but now they realize this problem. So they think, what are we going to do? How are we going to fix this problem? So that's the question we're left with. We go to chapter 20. I told you, chapter 19 is bad. Chapter 20, here's what, here's what I call chapter 20. The back and forth battle. So you'll see why I call it this in a little bit. But they're trying to figure out, okay, what do we do now that this terrible thing has happened? And just to give you a little bit of background, we're going to jump into verse 4. But before we get there, the Israelites basically come to the Levite and they say, wait a minute, we, you sent us a piece of a body. Like, let's figure this out. We need to hear the story. And so they come and say, let's make sure we understand this correctly. And so in verse 4, this is the Levite having the conversation and telling his side of the story again. This is the Levite in verse 4 of chapter 20. The husband of the woman who had been murdered said, My concubine and I came to spend the night in Gibeah, a town that belongs to the people of Benjamin. Verse 5. That night some of the leading citizens of Gibeah surrounded the house, planning to kill me, and they raped my concubine until she was dead. Now... Two problems with this part of the story, okay? We didn't read verse 25. But he was in favor of, like, with the old man saying, let's just get her out there so they leave us alone. So he kind of plays it as he was the victim, right? And then they came and took her or something like that. No, he was kind of okay with this. And he says, some of the leading citizens of Gibeah. Well, we, what the story we got was it was just some troublemakers, right? So it wasn't the leading people. It was just a group of people from Gibeah. So he's automatically kind of spinning this tale in a way that wasn't actually 100% true. In verse 6, it says, So I cut her body into 12 pieces and sent the pieces throughout the territory assigned to Israel. For these men have committed a terrible and shameful act. Verse 7, Now then, all of you, the entire community of Israel, must decide here and now what should be done about this. And all of a sudden, he's got the high ground, doesn't he? This happened to me. I'm the victim. I can't believe they did this to my concubine. What are we? And then he goes and he looks at everybody. He goes, now, what are you going to do about it? How are we going to fix this? And he's almost like rallying the people to get all riled up so that they go and they fix his problem because now he feels like he's got to be vindicated or something. This is just problem after problem after problem. And so we go a little bit further in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 20. It says, the Israelites sent messengers to the tribe of Benjamin saying, what a terrible thing has been done among you. Give up those evil men, those troublemakers from Gibeah, so we can execute them and purge Israel of this evil. So their first solution is, let's just kill the guys who did it, right? Give us those guys. We'll take care of them. That'll be out of the way, and we'll purge Israel of all this problem, and we can move on because these guys will be gone. Not so easy, though. Verse 14, but the people of Benjamin would not listen. Instead, they came from their towns and gathered at Gibeah, to fight the Israelites. Just, just pause. What has happened? Levi takes a concubine. That trickles down. Israel is literally on the verge of a civil war because of it. One tribe is saying, we're going to take on the rest of Israel. Now, we don't really get why Benjamin decides they want to fight. They could have easily given them up. I mean, what was it? 10, 20 guys, 30 guys, whatever. Even if it was 50, you give 50 guys over and it all goes away. For whatever reason, they decide, nope, we're going to buddy up with, our, with the guys and we're going to come and fight. The only logic I can figure out is sometimes when you've got a best friend or a family member and you kind of look at each other and you're like, you know, they have to go do something and you know it's not right, but you're like, I got your back, like, let's roll, right? Like, you're just going to go along with it because you have such a close-knit bond with that person. It's the only thing I can come up with that would be a reason that they would back this. 
But they decide instead of giving up these men, they're going to gather at Gibeah and be ready to fight against the Israelites. Now this is why, and we're going to skip ahead in a little bit. We're going to skip ahead about 30 verses. But in that 30 verses, here's what happens. The fight continues. They dive into it. And what's very interesting is if you go back and you read it, the rest of Israel actually goes before God and says, what should we do? And the first day they say, who should we send in to fight first? And they say, God says, Judah, send the tribe of Judah. Well, the problem is the people of Benjamin kind of have the high ground. So the people of Judah, they they attack and they take big losses. And so they pull back out. Day number two, the Israelites come back again and they ask God, who should we send? And he gives them a message and they go and they fight again. But Benjamin still has the high ground. So they take, Israel takes severe losses again. And it's interesting this back and forth with God because God is giving them information. He's going to answer their questions. But in other times when the Israelites would go before God and they would ask how they should fight or God would tell them to go fight, the fight was easy. If God went before them and God was in the fight, they very rarely took losses. They would just kind of roll in and God takes care of it and they're good, right? Not so this way. So he answers them, but he's not in the fight with them. So they come back a third time and they're praying and they're fasting and they're offering sacrifices and they're going, God, will you be with us this time? And on the third day, he says, yes. He says, I will be with you. I'll give them into your hands. And they actually kind of switch up their, their way of attack and they draw the, ben, the people of Benjamin out of their stronghold and then they kind of surround them and take over. If you want to read it, it's very interesting. We just need to kind of get through it today. So we fast forward in verses 46 and 47. It says, So that day the tribe of Benjamin lost 25,000 strong warriors armed with swords, leaving only 600 men who escaped to the rock of Rimon where they lived for four months. So get this. The entire tribe of Benjamin is reduced to 600 men. That's it. So the Israelites get so zealous about it, they kill the women and children too. We got 600 men left. That's how chapter 20 ends. So chapter 21, I've called this Wives for Benjamin. This is kind of the focus of this chapter. So in Judges 21, starting verses uh, 1 and 2, it says the Israelites had vowed at Mizpah, We will never give our daughters in marriage to a man from the tribe of Benjamin. Now the people went to Bethel and sat in the presence of God until evening, weeping loudly and bitterly. Verse 3, O Lord God of Israel, they cried out, why has this happened in Israel? Now one of our tribes is missing from Israel. So again, catch this, right? Israel makes these decisions They go to war against Benjamin, they have this fight, they decide to go overkill, and they kill everybody, leaving only 600 men left. And then they realize, oh no, we've completely destroyed a tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, because we've also vowed not to give our daughters in marriage to them. So if we can't give our daughters in marriage to them, those 600 men are just going to die, and the whole tribe is gone. And now they go before God and go, why has this happened? Why did the decisions we made get us here, is basically what they're saying. And now all of a sudden, they turn back to God, and they go, help us, right? How did this happen? Almost as though it was God's fault. This is where we get to times, and we kind of, we want to look at God, and we want to go, why did this happen to me? Or why is it this way? Or I don't want to worship a God who allowed this to happen. But here's the problem. In all of those situations, when people look at God and say, why did God allow this to happen? The main 
people involved are humans. And so we make poor decisions, we do the wrong thing, and we get ourselves in positions where we go, why would God allow it? We go, well, look at what humans do. We make poor decisions, we end up taking too much ground, we end up taking too many lives. And we end up in situations where we finally turn around and go, oh no, we've crossed the line. So they realize this is the problem. They've got to come up with another solution. And so they think about this town called Jabesh Gilead, and they hadn't joined the fight. So in verses 10 through 11, they decide they're going to go take care of them. So the assembly sent 12,000 of their best warriors to Jabesh Gilead with orders to kill everyone there, including women and children. This is what you are to do, they said, completely destroy all the males and every woman who is not a virgin. So they say, we'll take this town, this group of people, we'll wipe them out except for the young women that are suitable for marriage, and we'll match them up with the men from Benjamin, problem solved. So let's kill more people to give them wives. Now it even gets a little more interesting, because they end up with 600 men of Benjamin and only 400 women from Jabesh Gilead. So now they're like, oh no, the odds aren't right. So now they're going to be upset because some of them aren't going to get wives. So they come up with this idea and they have the women go dance in celebration in the field and they tell the men of Benjamin to go pick a wife and take her. So it's kind of like survival of the fittest. If you, whoever can kidnap a wife gets one. That's how this plays out. And guess what? That's the way the book of Judges ends. This story ends with Let's just kind of save ourselves. We'll have this, this plan. This is the way it'll go. And then in verse 25 of Judges 21, this is what it says. In those days, Israel had no king, and all the people did what was, whatever was right in their own eyes. And that's the end. So we went through this whole book of Judges, and we get this story at the very end that kind of sums up exactly what the whole story kind of was, right? God tried gives them judges, he gives them peace, he saves them from the people that are oppressing them over and over and over again until they just, the Israelites are so infuriating that they just don't decide to follow him anymore. And so God kind of goes, you know what, you're on your own. They don't serve a king and they get themselves into this place. And at the end of Judges, things are in shambles. In fact, they got so far along that they almost completely wiped out a whole tribe of Israel. And so the question we're left with as we process judges and why we're even studying it is, what happens when we have no king? Now, this is an interesting question and an interesting idea for us as Americans, because we almost sometimes pride ourselves in the fact that we don't have a king or we don't have a queen or we have democracy, right? Uh, the U.S. played England in the World Cup this week, and all the things on social media were jokes about how uh, the U.S. has never lost to England, including the Revolutionary War, right? Like, that was kind of the idea. And so we make fun of it, and we go, yeah, we don't have this queen or king that rules over us. And so this is difficult, but here's what I would say to us. We all have something we serve. We all have something that we hold dear. Sometimes it is freedom that we hold dear, and we serve, and we elevate, and we think this is the greatest thing that we could have. Sometimes it's, it's democracy. Sometimes it's just for us. It's whatever drives us. It's our passions. It's whatever it might be. And those things are going to rule our lives. And it's going to decide the way we make our decisions. And what scripture tells us is we should offer our lives to the king. Not a physical king, not an earthly king, but a heavenly king. So what happens when we don't do that? 
I think there are three things that become very clear through the book of Judges and even through this story that happen when we don't have a king. The first thing is that morality is subjective. I think this is, this is easy to see in the world around us, right? Morality is, is judged on what we want it to be and how, what our opinion is. And even when you get into a conversation with somebody about that, if they don't follow God, they don't follow Jesus, you're going to get into that. They're going to go, well, but everybody agrees that this is right and wrong in some circumstances. But really what ends up happening is it's just whatever popular opinion is. And when that's the case, that can change over time. And so there's no measuring stick. There's no, there's no understanding of what morality is. And we see that in this story because the Levites started this whole thing by taking a concubine. That was wrong. And sometimes people will look at scripture and they see stories where men in in scripture take concubines or they take multiple wives and they look at scripture and they go, see, the Bible's in favor of polygamy. Not the case. In fact, everywhere you see that, that happen, that decision made by somebody, it ends up in shambles. This being a very key one. You go back to that issue and maybe this doesn't actually trickle down to this place. But anytime there's this decision of I'm just going to be like the people around me, right and wrong is not that important. Let's just continue on this path. That's a problem. And when morality is subjective, there's no, there's no measuring stick for what right and wrong is. And as we went through this story, we understood. They just kind of kept thinking, okay, well, we'll figure out this problem and we'll figure out this. But there was never the question of what does God say we should do? until they had to fight a battle and their lives were on the line. They decided over and over again to just say, well, we'll figure it out, we'll figure it out, we'll figure it out. And that led them to a very dark place. And so when there is no king, there's no standard, there's no person we've offered our lives to in unison, morality becomes subjective. Here's the second thing. The well-being of self is elevated over the well-being of others. You know, sometimes when you can at least get into a space where you are in agreement with the people around you, you live for a higher purpose, right? That's what we would hope we do as the church, that we would live in unison with one another, working together for a higher purpose. And when that happens, what's best for me isn't always most important, right? I can, I can sacrifice for you because that's what's best. But when there's no standard for that, there's no measuring stick, there's no higher calling or someone that we're living to please or our lives are offered to, well, then what's best for me is simply what's best. That's how you get to a space where someone comes knocking on your door and you offer your daughter instead of your neighbor. That's not going to happen, right? But at the same time, we make those decisions and we say, I would choose me over you over and over and over again. That's what happened throughout this story. And so with no king... Well-being of self is elevated over the well-being of others. Here's the third thing, that solutions to problems become problems themselves. You might have experienced this in life, right? You try and fix a problem, that creates a worse problem. This is what happens when I try and fix things around my house. I get to the point I try and fix something, and then I make that problem, and then I make that problem. I've stopped doing that until I can YouTube it and make sure I'm right, right? You, you just start to cause more problems sometimes when you get in there and you don't know what you're doing. And this isn't just a biblical story. Like, we can see this through history. Times where groups of people decided to subjugate other groups of people for their gain. And what did that cause? That causes a worse problem down the line. By the way, it usually leads to war. And so we see, we make these decisions as a culture, as a people group, as humans, and we cause more problems because we're not, again, looking at that measuring stick, looking at that understanding of what the king has called us to 
And when we do that, we cause more problems that trickle down and get worse and worse and worse. And so here's what I want to do before we wrap this up. If you remember, way back the beginning of the year, right around February, we started a conversation in the book of Revelation. And we talked through the seven churches that, are, that have letters written to them in Revelation. But we skipped chapter 1 because chapter 1 wasn't written to one of the churches. It was kind of the setup of Revelation. And so I want to go back and I want to read a couple of verses there that are going to give us a little bit of hope as we come out of this story. And so in Revelation 1, verses 4 and 5, this is what it says. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. From the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things. The first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. Verse, continuing in verse 5 and into verse 6 says, All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever Amen. So who is to be our king? Jesus is. And it says that he's creating us. He's making us into a kingdom of priests. Do you understand? If if the Israelites had heard that phrase, they would have been dumbfounded by it. Because you had to be from the tribe of Levi to be a priest. And so that didn't make sense unless you were from Levi. And then being an entire kingdom, that would have made sense. But being priests, what does that mean? And it says that we're made a kingdom of priests for him, that we would make it known to other people who aren't a part of that kingdom already what it means to be part of that kingdom. But here's the thing, right? We can't be a kingdom without a king. And this is a challenge. As much as we want to look at the Israelites and just go, they're ridiculous, we over and over and over again have to decide to make Jesus our king. Like, we have to decide that what he wants from us, what he has laid out for us, the way that he has led us is going to be the way we live. Because we can very easily find our way into talking our way out of following him. Or talking our way into valuing ourselves more than others. Or talking our way into finding our own solutions to problems we may have. And where the rubber kind of meets the road on this conversation is that somebody, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you would look at me and maybe just say, but if we just are good people, things are going to work out. Like, we don't have to be as bad as the Israelites. Like, we're looking at this story and we're getting too much from it. Like, just try and be a good person. I would say if we look at history and we understand the way things work, that, that is not the way it goes. That we just understand that people are just generally good and everything's going to work out. That's not the reality we see around us. And I would say it this way, that the depravity of humanity cannot be overcome by good intentions. How, how depraved we are, that what that means is how sinful we are, how sin is just a part of what we are drawn to and we do. That's not going to be overcome by just saying, well, I, I just, I believe I'm good, so it's going to work out. That's not reality. And if we think that's going to be the case, we're kind of fooling ourselves. And the only thing that could overcome Our depravity was the blood of the king that offered it for us. Um, Judges was written not as a satire, but Judges was written as a a blueprint. You know, one of the movies, uh, we almost watched it last night. One of the movies we'll watch around this time of year is uh, Christmas Vacation. Because you watch that movie, and the whole point is, this is so ridiculous, it can't be real, right? 
This doesn't happen over. And so it'd be easy to look at judges and just go, this is so ridiculous. How could this be the case? How could this be what really is true? And yet we've got it in scripture. And the reason is because it's a blueprint. It's a blueprint for what life looks like, for what humans will do, for what you and I will do if we don't follow the king. And if we're honest with ourselves, like, I don't like to paint this picture. I don't like to be like, again, culture, us, separating that. But if we just look at culture and we go, what, is, what does culture look like? And, and even looking back through history, like, what happens when people just decide they're not going to serve, they're not going to follow God, they're not going to be in unison and follow a king? Like, what happens? Like, anarchy just goes. And, and it just falls apart. And we get to places where cultures actually stop and go, oh, my word, what have we done? It's exactly what happens. And so judges, when we read it, we don't read it like, oh, this is so ridiculous. This could never be true. I would never. We look at it and we say, this is the blueprint for what happens when we decide not to follow God. So the truth is, only our heavenly king could create beauty from ashes. Here's the great part, right? We look at the end of Judges and we see how terrible things were and how in shambles the nation of Israel was. And yet, there was a king that was born in Bethlehem where the concubine of the Levite was from, who came to live an earthly life, not a king who goes and sits on a throne somewhere that we can't interact with, someone that came to our context to show us what it meant to live and how he wanted us to do that and how to serve others and encouraging us not to make ourselves more important, but to follow his regulations and to put others above ourselves. He came so that we could worship him, and he died, and he rose again, so that we today could become part of that kingdom of priests. So even though everything was in shambles, we fast forward to what Revelation tells us, and all that God still had set out and laid out and was in control of still came true. And we have the opportunity to take advantage of that, and to be part of his kingdom, and to be one of his priests in that kingdom. As we wrap this conversation, here's what I, here's what I want us to do, and here's what I would want to be true of us. That we would say this about ourselves, and I hope that it's about us, but I hope it's about other churches as well. Like when I say church in this sentence, I don't just mean GFC. I want it to be all the churches around the world. And it would be this. And in those days, the church served one king and did whatever was right in his eyes. So over and over again, right, we heard about the Israelites. They had no king and did what was ever right in their eyes. My hope is that it would be the church served one king, and did whatever was right in his eyes. And if we don't want to end up in a space where we have to stop and look back and go, oh my, what have we done? We must follow the king. Because if we don't, we will end up in a place where we've dug ourselves into a hole. We have not paid attention to what's valuable. We've elevated ourselves above others. And that moment will happen where we cross a line that we didn't mean to cross and we'll have to stop and turn to God and go, oh no, what have I done? But if we keep Jesus as our king, that won't be the case. If we decide to follow him and not pursue our own ambitions, he will be the one who guides our path and we will stay out of those spaces where we go, oh no, what have I done? Not necessarily the most fun book to study, but there's hope. If you can get from the last couple verses of Judges to the first few verses of Revelation, there's something good happening. And so now we get to look forward to 
celebrating the coming of that king. So as we transition, right, into Christmas, the coming of the king, who is your king? We asked that a couple weeks ago. Are you worshiping the king that's almighty and infinite and created the world and sustains everything? Or are we just worshiping ourselves? And I would challenge you to do some work this week and kind of process that. How do we stay on the right path? How do we not end up like the people of Israel? How do we honor him and say, my life is going to be ruled by King Jesus? Let's pray. God, this, this study was not easy. And the stories that we read are not easy to read. Um, and it's hard to look at some of these things that we had to process, even read in, in verses today and say, how do we learn and understand what's going on in our lives through it? And even though it's tempting to kind of look at this and say, we would never do or we would never be, we also pray that we would understand our own faults and our own sinfulness. And we ask that instead of elevating ourselves or choosing to solve our own problems, that we would continue to keep you Lord of our lives and King of our hearts. We ask that you would impress on us those times where we need to back off of our own desires and remember that you are the King on the throne. We thank you that even though the end of Judges is, is terrible, then we fast forward to Revelation and we look at what's true today, that we get to be a part of that kingdom of priests, making you known to the rest of the people who aren't quite part of the kingdom yet. And we ask as we enter into the Christmas season that you would guide us into those conversations and that we would solidify you as Lord of our life and that we would invite people to be a part of the kingdom we know because we understand the value it has. Pray even moving forward as we process this Christmas that you would just grow us in ways we didn't know we could grow and that we would be even closer to you than we've ever been before. In Jesus' name, amen.